this morning. God is good. Reminds me of a discussion I've had many times with people. The question is asked, um, what's the, the most important attribute or characteristic of God? And of course, many people would say, of course, love, which is extremely important. Or some might say God is holy, um, completely separate from sin. Or God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Or God is omniscient. He knows all things. But the word I would choose is, is good. The reason I would choose that is from a Bible passage back in the book of Exodus in which Moses is speaking. And uh, he, he says to God, um, apparently they talked somehow. I don't know how it happened, but they talked. And, uh, and Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God, in essence, says, uh, uh, sorry, Moses, that would vaporize you. So I don't want to vaporize you, but here's what we'll do. I'm going to hide you, and then I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you, and I will tell you my name. And so in the next chapter, chapter 34 of Exodus, God hides Moses behind a rock, and it says that God then passed by Moses, and that what passed by was his goodness. And then he said his name. Here's his name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives sin and iniquity and rebellion to, and, and forgives thousands, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, visiting their iniquities to the third and the fourth generation. So, that's what he said. So love, God's love is subsumed under his goodness. God's forgiveness is subsumed under his goodness. And I think that's so important because uh, God, there's no dark side of the force. There is no dark Vader. Um, God, there is nothing about God that is not good. And that's one of our great confidences as people. Even though things happen to us that are clearly bad and are very, very difficult, Ultimately, God is in the business of good. Speaking of good, we're about to look at one of the, I'm going to use a funny word, goodest. Um, it's not a word, but I made it up. Uh, one of the goodest people, I think, that's perhaps ever lived on planet Earth. His name is Daniel. He's one of the few people in the whole Bible about whom we know a lot, but we don't know anything he ever did wrong. In fact, we find a couple of occasions that a message comes from God to Daniel and says, God highly esteems you. Can you imagine what kind of person God would say, I, I highly esteem that guy or that woman. Whoa, that's great. So Daniel is going to be uh, highlighted today in the deepest part of his character. And the way we're going to see his character is through his prayer. Now, let me talk about character for a minute. Character is one of the most important things any of us have as human beings. And uh, there's some sample quotes. Here's John Wooden, the coach of the UCLA Bruins many, a number of years ago. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Big difference. This is someone else. Character is doing the right thing when no one is looking. It's one thing to do the right thing when people are looking, and we have a little bit of incentive and motivation to do so, but when no one's looking, do we still do the right thing? Or this, character, like a photograph, develops in darkness. 
Once again, it's, it's not what we do when people see out in the public eye, but when we're away in the darkness. That's where character develops. Here's John Wooden, the coach again. Sports do not build character. They reveal it. For those of us who have played sports, you know that sports really will challenge you a lot. It will show what you're really like inside. It will reveal your character. Or this one. People of character do the right thing even if no one else does. Not because they think it will change the world, but because they refuse to be changed by the world. That's pretty powerful. And the person to whom that really applies is Daniel. Daniel refused to do the wrong thing in many occasions, not because he had some dream that this was going to change the world, but because he was not going to allow the norms and the values of the world to define how he would behave. He was a man of incredible character. This is Winston Churchill. Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it's made in the small ones. It's in the little things of life that become habits, and habits is what becomes your character over time. Now today we're going to see the character of one of the greatest people who's ever lived. And I think that's a very fair statement with regard to Daniel. And his character is going to be demonstrated in the dark, not in the light. This is not Daniel in the lion's den. This is not Daniel before the king. This is not Daniel interpreting dreams. This is not Daniel seeing visions. This is Daniel in a place where no one can see him. What is he like when no one can see him? And this is what he's like. He is pure in heart. And perhaps the place where the purity of a heart is best demonstrated is not what we're like in public, but what we're like in private. Not when people can see, but when only God can see. As you know, these words, blessed are the pure in heart, they come from Jesus. So our text of scripture is Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. This is one of the most important prayers in all the Bible. I would say, without a doubt, the most important prayer in the Bible is Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Not the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. John 17 tells us Jesus' prayer. That's the best. But I would submit to you that this may be the second best prayer in all the Bible. It's one of the longest prayers in the Bible, 19 verses. It doesn't take very long to read. In fact, almost all the prayers in the Bible are very, very short. But in this prayer of Daniel, we're going to see the character of one of the most incredible people who's ever lived. Now, the first thing we're going to see Daniel doing is he is going to take God at his word. Because chapter 9 opens up with Daniel reading the Bible. Now, Daniel did not have a Bible like we have here. Because Bibles like this didn't exist until the 1400s A.D., Daniel would have probably had a scroll. But because, remember, Daniel's an extremely well-educated man. First of all, he's brilliant, probably a genius. Then he got the finest Ivy League education in Babylon, so he's a very learned man. And we find him, as chapter 9 opens, he's reading the scrolls. Here's what it says. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign. 
We know when that was. It's very clear from historical records outside the Bible as well as inside the Bible. This is 538 B.C. So in the year 538 B.C., when Darius, Darius is from, remember, the Mede and Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. They did not destroy Babylon. They simply ruled Babylon, but now under uh, a new management, you might want to say. Darius was the new manager under Cyrus, who was the big, bigwig king. So now Daniel, who is in his early 80s now, he's an old man, he's reading the scriptures. Look at here's what it says. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. Now Jeremiah and Daniel lived at the same time. Both of them around the year, well we know they're both alive in 586 B.C., now, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, rather, was one of the greatest. Some uh, Jewish people consider Daniel the greatest of the prophets after Moses, who is the greatest. Jeremiah lived during the last days of the nation's history before the Babylonians conquered them and took them into captivity. Jeremiah, the prophet, he, this is what he said to the Jewish people. He said, Give up! and save your lives. Go into captivity. Now, if someone came here, and let's say our country is under siege, and someone goes to Washington, D.C., gets on the television and says, I urge you, surrender, give up. Go into captivity. What would we call that person? Traitor, exactly. And that's precisely what they called Jeremiah. He's a traitor. So all the false prophets were saying the opposite. They were saying, no, no, God is on our side. And Jeremiah is saying, no, God is not on our side. They say, no, God will save us. Jeremiah said, no, he won't save us. Surrender. Fight. Jeremiah says, this is why you should surrender. Because you will not turn back the judgment of God, and if you surrender, you'll save your lives You'll be alive. The false prophets are saying, Oh, no, God loves us. We have the temple. Fight! Well, what did the people do? They went with the false prophets. They put Jeremiah into a pit and eventually sent him off into exile. Daniel's alive at this time. The beauty, of course, is that the people finally realized that Jeremiah was right and the other prophets were fakes. The one who urged surrender was not the traitor. He was the patriot. Sometimes patriotism and, and, uh, and traitors are hard to discern. Well, in any case, Daniel had a copy of Jeremiah's scroll, and one day in 538, he's reading it. And this is what he comes across. He saw that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now we know what he was reading. Here it is. This is from the book of Jeremiah. This is what Daniel was reading. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. 
Here's what else he said. This is what the Lord says. This is Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So that's what he's reading. Now Daniel is smart. He got an A in math. And so he's doing his math. Six, I came into captivity in 605 and now it's 538. I'm, I'm not too good with math. How far, how, how close is that by the way? 605 minus 538, someone please. What is it? 67 years. So Daniel's no dummy. God, you said 70 years, and they're 67. You made a promise. You made a promise. And I'm going to believe that you keep your promises. So the 70 years are almost up, so what does Daniel do? He prays. He doesn't just pray. He puts like gunny sacks on him. And remember, he's a very, very wealthy man, probably in a very high position. He's the prime minister. Puts on um, sackcloth, he stops eating, and he prays, facing Jerusalem. Ray Stedman, he's a pastor who's now deceased, who is out in California, right near Stanford University. Prayer is God's way of involving us in the program he sets out to do. We must get rid of the notion that prayer is a way God has given us of making him work for us. The problem is almost all of us see prayer in the last sense. We like to think prayer is about what God can do for me. But Daniel didn't see it that way. God, Daniel saw prayer as what is God up to? What has he promised? And how can I be a part of what God is doing? That's what, is, that's what prayer is about. We get it backwards most of the time. Not that God minds, I don't think. He's happy for us to come as children and tell him what we want. Just like our children. If our children say to Daddy, I want some candy. Well, do we sometimes give them candy? Yes. Do we give them candy all the time? No. Why? We know candy is not good for them all the time. But do we do it sometimes? Yes. Do we ever say to a child, now I don't want you ever again in your life to ask me for candy? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't be that. You wouldn't do that if you're a kind parent. You'd say, you know, child, I, I have a plan for you. I want you to be healthy. I want you to grow up to be strong. Candy's not going to do it for you. So I'm going to say no. That's how God does with us sometimes. So Daniel begins by taking God at his word. And then he's going to do something really weird in his prayer. He's going to confess his sin. Now what's weird about this is we don't know any sins of Daniel. We, we have no idea what he did wrong. He, he sees himself as someone who's done something wrong, but we don't know what it is because we have no record of anything Daniel ever did wrong. Now what he's going to do in the next verses, you'll see I underlined it for you, is he's going to keep using the word we. I, I think it's 13 times. Here's what it goes. 
I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Here's his prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. The first thing he says is, we've sinned. You see, Daniel knows why they've spent the 70 years in captivity. God made it crystal clear. He made it crystal clear to Moses 1,000 years earlier. The nation of Israel had just come into the land of Israel, and they read the law of Moses, and they all said, we'll do this. Moses said, wait a minute. If you don't, God's going to kick you out of this land. Oh, that's okay. We're a good people. We love to follow God. Are you sure? Yes, 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 yes. By the way, do we do that too? Oh, I like to follow God. Oh, is that right? Tell me about it. No, generally speaking, we're not really much different than the people of Israel. We're quite disobedient most of the time. But Daniel completely identifies himself with the sin of his people, though he personally did not commit those sins. He identifies himself with the sin of his people. Robert Bella wrote a book, a, a well-regarded book called Habits of the Heart. He's a, a, an eminent sociologist. And he said that what defines us as Americans is we have a radical sense of individualism. That is the defining value of an American is we believe it's all about me, my rights, my entitlements, etc. Now, it's, it's served us pretty well as a country, as you know. We've, we've done pretty well for many, many years. But the problem is, ultimately, that doesn't work. And it's really weird in our world. Because you see, all over our world, people don't look at things individually. They look at things corporately. And so did Daniel. When we see somebody who bears the name Christian, or is a priest, or is a pastor, who does something that is morally wrong, what do we tend to do? Look at that bum. How could they ever do this? Okay. How often when, like, there's another uh, pedophilia scare uh, uh, that come, comes out, do we say, we, we Christians have sinned? As you know, right now, we're in, a, in, a, in a, a phase of our country's history in which all kinds of, of, of sexual evils by creepy men are coming out. Lots of it. Now, I'm, I'm still waiting, but I have yet to hear one people, one person in the Hollywood crowd saying, we, Hollywood, have sinned. I think I'm going to die if I ever hear it. No, Weinstein! Lower. We, and I'm not trying to say that those people are not wrong. They're wrong. They're dead wrong. But do we ever see our complicity in that? You see, when we sin, when, when Daniel saw the sin of his people, he didn't say, those stinking Jewish people who don't obey God. He said, no, 
we have not obeyed God. We have not followed the prophets who spoke the truth to us. And the truth is, honestly, we should say that too, because it's true. There's a sense in which we're all guilty. This is Abraham Lincoln. This is a letter he wrote to, um, in the middle of the Civil War to a, a person from Tennessee in the South. Look at the tone of Abraham Lincoln's letter. It's stunning. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now, at the end of three years' struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong, and the great wrong in this letter is slavery, if God now wills the removal of a great wrong and wills also that we of the North as well as you of the South shall pay fairly for our complicity in that wrong, impartial history will find therein new cause to attest and revere the justice and the goodness of God. I mean, that's stunning. He didn't say, you confederate idiots, you horrible slave owners. He says, we, our complicity in the north is with you. We are complicit too in this evil. We're all complicit. But just the, the, the spirit of that letter is stunning. Don't you see? That's like Daniel. We love to find who we can blame outside of ourselves. We love it. We, and our society provides all kinds of means for us to find people to blame. But that's not a pure heart. A pure heart sees their own complicity in not just their own sin, but the sin of the church, the sin of the community, the sin of our state, the sin of our nation, the sin of our world. That's what Daniel did. And that's why this man is so precious to God his concept of sin was so much deeper than our superficial one. And our love of pointing fingers at other people, it's not right. This is Martin Luther. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. Here's a heart. That's a Daniel-like heart. Abraham Lincoln had a Daniel-like heart. He knew who he was, and God is very fond of that. Well, the next thing Daniel's going to do in his prayer is he's going to acknowledge the goodness of God. He's going to contrast the goodness of God with the bad track record of himself and his people. Look at the wheeze again. Lord, you're righteous, but to this day we are covered with shame. We're shameful. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. You're faithful. We are not. Oh, Lord, we, our kings, our princes, our fathers, are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. 
All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. So he doesn't try to pin any of this on God. Instead, he says, you're the one that's been good. We're the ones who have failed. Now, how do you know if you really believe that you've done wrong? There's an acid test. The acid test, if you really know you've done wrong, is you're willing to accept the consequences of your wrong behavior. Here's Daniel. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole of heaven, nothing has ever been done like what it was done to Jerusalem. Here's a capital city of a whole nation that was destroyed, all of its population taken into captivity, its temple reduced to rubble, and all of its holy items taken to another place. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for our Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. You know, I, 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 first time I came here to Sheridan was in February of uh, last year. A few days after uh, I left you for the first time, I didn't meet you at that time, I met just the elders of this church. I then um, drove to Texas to spend the next, three year, the next three weeks in Austin, Texas with my daughter. She was pregnant and about ready to give birth to my ninth grandchild, but she was still working. She's an assistant uh, prosecutor in a county right next to Austin, Texas. So since she needed me as the designated driver to get her to the hospital if she went into labor, I went with her to court every day for a week. The first day, she, her trial, it took a couple of days, this trial. The trial was a, a, of a young man. I think he was 17 when the crime occurred. He used his phone and solicited sex from a 14-year-old girl, and he was caught. And now it's three years later. He was, I think, 20 years old now, and, and the young woman was 17. Well, the trial took place, and he was found to be guilty. And then uh, he had to be sentenced, which he was. After he was sentenced, the, the judge was dismissing the court, and the woman who was the victim, now 17 years of age, she stood up and said, Your Honor, I would like to speak to the court. The judge said, uh, <laughs> Okay. And then he turned to the jurors and said, You're all free to leave. They said, We don't want to leave. And those of us sitting in the gallery were only about 10 of us. This woman took a podium like this, a little simple thing, and she went and brought it right in front of the man who had done this to her. She looked at him and she said, what you've done to me is wrong. You've taken away something from me that I can never get back, but I want you to know that I am a Christian. And I believe that God has forgiven me for my sins. And I do not want you to haunt me for the rest of my life. I stand here before this court and right in your face and I tell you, I forgive you for what you did. We're bawling our eyes out. Every person in the court, we can't believe what we're watching. 
This beautiful woman, 17 years of age, had the, the presence, the strength, the courage, all of this to stand before. This is what we should be putting on TV. I mean, it was beautiful. Just beautiful. Now, the judge didn't say, well, um, sit down now. I'm going to suspend the consequences of his wrong. No, 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 no. There's a difference between forgiveness and the consequences of what we do wrong. Forgiveness is relational. She knew that. She said, I'm not going to let you haunt me for the rest of my life, and I want you to know that I forgive you for what you did to me. But he still has to face the consequences of what he did. That's justice. But she gave him mercy. And what does, this, what does they do here? Daniel realizes that his only hope is the mercy of God. This is Ray Stedman again. One of the major hindrances to prayer is that most of us are angry at God. We do not like what God has done to us. We think we have been treated unfairly. How many of us have caught ourselves in one way or another saying, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why are you treating me like this? What have I done to deserve this kind of thing? All of that is a subtle way of blaming God, of saying, he is not righteous. If anyone should know the reality of this, it should be First Baptist Church Sheridan because we had an example. Lena and Dan, your precious mother and daughter, she showed us this exact thing. As time went on, what does she do? She just focuses on the goodness of God. It was stunning. We saw it. We as a church saw somebody walk with God into Jesus' arms stunningly. We saw it. We are the privileged people. We saw somebody who didn't say, oh, why are you treating me like this? Instead, she focused our attention on the goodness of God. I mean, good gracious, where did this come from? I know where it comes from. It comes from God. It's beautiful. That's what life is about. She showed us. She showed us beautifully. What does Daniel do then? He knows that his sin is real. Can't take away the consequences. So what does he ask for? He asks for mercy. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for us, made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our Father have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. The, the story, I think it's a true story, is told of a, a, a woman who went to Napoleon pleading for her son because her son had committed a couple of crimes and had been found guilty of those crimes and was about to be executed. So this woman went to Napoleon pleading for mercy. And uh, Napoleon had an interesting response, or um, actually, she did. Let me read it to you, if I can find it here. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice, and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, 
It would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all I ask for. Well then, said Napoleon, I grant him mercy. See, when we ask for mercy, we're not asking for justice. We're asking for the opposite. We're asking that God does not hold against us our sin. And that's what Daniel does. But now he's going to end. And this, is the, this part I find really interesting. Because now Daniel, in his prayer, is going to twist God's arm. Watch what he does. It's really interesting. And I'll bet God likes it. I'll bet God likes his arm twisted. Here's what Daniel does. Now, O oh God, hear the prayers of your servant. For your sake, O oh Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. That sanctuary is your house. Don't you want a new house? Give ear, O oh God, and hear. Open your eyes. See the desolation of the city that bears your name. That city is your city. Don't you want a good city? Our, the, what's happened to us is horrible. Don't your eyes see it? I don't make these requests because we're righteous, but because you're merciful. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, oh, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people that bear your name, after all, our future, our whole life is tied up in you. We bear your name. So, Bring us home. God likes it, because that's what he does. Oh, you want to know what a pure heart looks like? Here's what it looks like. A pure heart is one that has a simple trust in God's word. Daniel begins by reading the prophet Jeremiah. He sees a promise God made, and he takes it to the bank. A pure heart is one that doesn't blame shift other people, but is willing to accept not just their own sin, but our complicity in the corporate sin of others. Because we're all at fault. It's one that acknowledges even when things go bad, because things were going bad for the Jewish people at this time, God is good. Accepting that, he knows that when the consequences of their sin come to bear on them, it's deserved, and they accept them. But they don't leave it there. They turn now and ask God for mercy and grace, not for justice. Who wants justice? We want mercy. And what does he end up doing? He defends God's name. He says, you know why I'm asking for this ultimately, God? Because our future is tied up in your name. Here are the words of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This is true today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave us these words. Now in conclusion, would you stand with me? And I don't know if you saw it, but at every part of this prayer of Daniel's, it echoes the prayer that we pray in churches all over our world today, the Lord's Prayer. So would you pray with me, full of meaning, not just ritual, the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive